Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with Jim Burke. Jim, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for being here. He's in my apartment, and we met in person. And now I've had some famous people on the podcast, and I think Jim's name might not be as well known, but he has done something that, for me, is one of the most remarkable things. That there's a, And I went out, I don't know how, I read about you and then saw you in a video or, or two, that there's a program in New York City called Open Streets, where people can get a block or so deemed an open street, I guess, and, and we'll learn from him more. And in order to have it blocked off from cars, I'm not exactly, I, I'm not exactly sure the deal, but there's an area on 34th Avenue in Queens that is, last I checked, something like a mile and a half long. It's 26 blocks and 1.3 miles long. And this is 1.3 miles that was full of cars that is now, I guess that there's on-street parking for people who live there and ambulances and, and fire trucks can go through. But I went out on the 50th anniversary of Transportation Alternatives that I think you worked with along with the Open Streets program in the city. And it was wonderful. I mean, it was just tremendous that it was a weekend and a party to celebrate. But I could tell that it wasn't like it was maybe a particularly special day that day, but not unique because it was kids and families. And I rode along almost the full length of it on my bike. There were schools and kids could just walk out of the school and be in the street and be perfectly safe. This is like unbelievable because I have a street, a school across the street from me and there's big fences around and the parents have to take their kids and then they have to, they're all crowded into the sidewalk and it's not pleasant and it's loud. And like there's this video of this guy who's been on the podcast who makes a podcast. Oh, I told you about it called this, not just bikes. And here this episode, which is cities aren't loud. Cars are. That's right. Cities aren't that loud. I mean, sometimes there's jackhammers, I guess, for construction, but it's really cars and the sirens and all the backing up, the beep, beep, beep. And now I could hear street noise from other streets from 34th Avenue, but it was really I mean, kids you know playing. That's how you know you're approaching an intersection is because you can finally you hear cars again. Oh, man. But otherwise, like living in that neighborhood for almost two decades you never realized how loud the birds were because no matter how loud they were, they were always drowned out. Yeah. So that's a big difference that a lot of people notice, particularly in the beginning because it seemed like the birds were screaming. But you realize they were probably trying to communicate with each other over the din of car noise and we were not used to listening or hearing them. So I want to hear about the open street. I'm totally selfish here, but I hope that other people listening, there must be, there are likely similar things in other cities. But what I'm really interested in is I want to do something like that here in my neighborhood. But before learning about the Open Streets program, I'd love to hear about your background and how you had the gumption and gall to do something like this. I mean, I think you said you grew up in the Bronx. I did, yeah. Uh -huh. So can you give some of your background? And Well, I grew up in the Bronx, and as many people in my Bronx neighborhood, we spent a lot of our summer, or as much as we could, in Rockaway Beach. Mm -hmm. So those are my two... You know, my two reference points. Is that the A train all the way down? Oh, yeah, the opposite side. At that time, you could take one train, the CC, all the way for almost three hours and going back many years ago. But in both neighborhoods, we hung out, played in the streets, right? We played Manhunt, Ring Alivio. We played Kick the Can. Stickball. Every single thing that you can name, we played in the street in both neighborhoods. And that you would, you would scream car when a car came. And when, if you, once you, that, that particular play was finished, 
you would let the car pass. Do you mind asking if mm-hmm. I when what decade? So this was the mid to late seventies, up to the early yeah, really to the mid to the late seventies. Okay. And so that's whenever I see anybody my age or older, I know that they also trying to jog their memories, but they played in the streets because almost all New Yorkers played in the streets, right? We opened the hydrants up. That's how we cooled off in the summer. This is nothing new. It's just that over the years, the cars got much larger and the drivers got much more entitled and aggressive. But really, at most time, even in Manhattan, you see really pedestrians rule, right? And we're just trying to bring that back and make sure that the primary person on the street is actually the pedestrian. Do you know the history that like car? I mean, cars didn't used to rule the streets, and there was this whole campaign to make jaywalking illegal. That it wasn't jaywalking wasn't originally. Yeah, illegal. I read about that. That was yeah, that was a, a if your grandparents. Are. Yeah, that was a, a campaign by the auto industry, right? Yeah, it's because many people around the world were upset how many people got injured or died by automobiles. So they were trying to shift the blame, which they very successfully did. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, in our culture, our favorite thing is to blame the victim, right? Oh, someone got hit by the car. Oh, they were probably they were probably doing something, and really, the person who was doing something was behind the wheel and not paying attention or going too fast. And there's no pedestrian lobby in right. DC. <laughs> there's not millions of dollars. The thing is, when you're anything about street safety or anything about bicycle safety, pedestrian safety, there's not money behind it, right? It's just activists on the ground and people who are worried about their loved ones or who they themselves hurt, that's who pushes for these things. Listeners to this podcast. That's right. <laughs> so, okay, so you're a kid growing up and you're in between the Bronx and uh, the Rockaways and the streets were just where you were. And then what? No, no, that's, that's how I grew up. And the city instituted this open, under former mayor, Bill de Blasio, an open streets program. And so this is 2015, 2010? This is, no. The really launched right around the pandemic in 2020 is when, and in Jackson Heights, they opened up a two block stretch in front of our only park. We're very park deprived. Our sidewalks are really narrow. We have very little open space there. So they gave us uh, a two block thing. Did you ask for it? Did they give it to you? So all around the city, they gave it to all the under, so they were trying to give it to places that had the least amount of park space. So whether you want it or not, they should. Right. Doing. And so they opened up a lot of them. Most of them folded. And the way they did it was kind of heavy handed, right? It was like they had either police or police like people, police vehicles blocking the corners and they had police officers there. So in our case, many people in our neighborhood walked around it. Because it looks sort of like maybe a checkpoint or something bad has happened, because that's usually what happens when you see a conglomeration, a bunch of, cops. A conglomeration of, of police and vehicles. So then they said, oh, it was very expensive and it was a failure. And we said, wait, wait, it's the idea there is wonderful. The implementation was a failure. So what we did. Sorry, I want to look at this failure a little bit more. Sure. I mean, was it just like, were the cops like, hey, we got some overtime here. Let's uh, send like 15 extra people? I mean, no. I mean, they were just instructed, right, to cordon off a section from vehicles. And that was it, right? There was no... Okay, no no caring, no thought? No, there was no, no. They weren't doing anything wrong. They were doing exactly as the program laid out, right? Okay. So a bunch of us and many people in the neighborhood know each other from different campaigns, better buses or safer streets school streets, other campaigns that we've worked on as a neighborhood together. Oh, they heard us talking about them. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
we decided to demonstrate what we thought would be the best way to run an open street. So we got a sandwich board, and we run it for emergency vehicles only, and we put it on a corner. We gave a volunteer some orange vests. We invited people to join us in the street. This was during the pandemic, where people really were dying to get out of their houses, and safely, because you had to keep at that time six-foot distance. We were wearing masks. It was really the height of the pandemic, and our neighborhood was probably hit the hardest in the United States. They used to call it the epicenter of COVID. And all you heard really was ambulances all day long. Anyway, we put up the sign, mm-hmm. and we did it on our own. So did you ask the city? or did We did you... not ask the city. Okay. We did it ourselves. The idea of beg for forgiveness and rather than no, ask. And there was also, there was no one to ask. No one was home, basically. the city. Everybody was not working. No one was working. And so we put up this, and what happened was cars would see that, and they would turn off the avenue. That's all. It was like citizen action. And then kids were playing, you know, kids were playing, people were socializing, and we invited the media there, and... Basically, we said, this is the way. You don't need a heavy-handed, expensive approach because obviously we don't have the resources to man every corner (laughs) like a parade route, right? This is not rolling out. We can't afford to do have employees on every single corner. All you need is agreement with the community that this is a great idea and signs and like a little tiny barricade, a little barricade. So we petitioned for that. And oh, so, you, uh, sorry to interrupt. so you did it for a week, a month? No, we, did, we did it for a day, made a big splash, and we asked the city, we really want this open street. And instead of having the NYPD as a partner, we will form, which we did, the 34th Avenue Open Streets Coalition. And that was formed by all these neighbors that came together. And we worked with many local nonprofits in the neighborhood, and said, do you have a volunteer? We're gonna, we have to open the street every morning at a certain time. We have to close the street. We have to move and take away barricades from 26 blocks. And we have to do it within 10 minutes in the morning and 10 minutes in the evening. And this is, so when you're coordinating with, the, you, did, you found someone at the Open Streets program? So that when the city was imagining, like, say, a bid, where the police would take this on, a bid is, you know, business improvement district for people who don't know. Uh-huh. And we have many of those in New York, and they have businesses and they operate some open streets, and it's really great for restaurants and things like that. But our particular open street does not have businesses. What our open street has is schools. And we have about almost 7,000 kids that use the schools along the corridor or right off the corridor. So we have like four or five schools right on 34th Avenue, and then three or four right like half a block in or a block in. And so we we're not going to have this money for a bid, so this is where we came in. And if the police had handled it, we figured that every time there was an emergency or every time there was an issue, they wouldn't be able to do it, right? Because this is what happens. They would be on a call. Like, so we wanted consistency because one of the things that an open street needs is consistency. You're not going to let your child go and play on a street unless you know the barricades are in place, that you know that it's safe to walk, right? And so we were there every single morning. And every single evening. and So in the evening, cars can go through? It's not... So, a- so right. The, the street opens up again in the evening mm-hmm. after 8 p.m. And it's a normal street, mostly. Now, one of the great, wonderful things working with DOT is we now have school streets and school plazas, basically school plazas in front of many of our key schools. So make those are completely car-free. And that's even... That's what you talked about earlier because one of the most dangerous times for school children is at dismissal, arrival and dismissal. 
that's when someone else's parent might hit your child or you, right? Because people are rushing around. And now we have these buffers around the school there. No cars are allowed. And so that makes, first of all, it's just a magical thing to see all the kids and their parents walk back and forth, to see children, nine-year-olds and their friends biking to school because mm-hmm. it's safe. They can do it on their yeah. own. But also that crazy rush in and out of school where kids are playing and running that's now safe and it's a social time and you'll see people lingering people socializing people staying afterwards there's no rush home right there's you're not rushing your kids in a car and driving home you're probably meeting a parent your kids are playing with each other and then the other thing that the coalition has done from the very beginning even when school was out we activated the street with programming because we thought that was super important to invite people back in the street because people had forgotten what to do in the street, like that we wanted them to feel ownership in the street. And we also needed space. There was, everything was closed. So there was no place to work out. There was no place to do anything. But also in our neighborhood, people don't have that many resources. So all of these activities really come in handy. So we have Zumba, yoga, salsa dancing, Mexican different dancing classes, all these different classes. We teach English as a second language. Outdoors in the street. Outdoors in the street. And we have programming in the warmer months seven days a week. And when it drops down to the colder months, we probably go drop to three or four days a week. And then we have un- layered on top of that, we have special programming like this Saturday is the Colombian Independence Festival, right? To celebrate Colombian Independence. So we'll have musicians. That'll be a special thing that we have. And we have, we celebrate, we have the Holy Festival, the Color Festival. We celebrate just about anybody's holiday. Uh-huh. And we have injections. Because there's all the space in the city. Oh, well, yeah. We have all the space. Was before we only had like a couple of pocket parks yeah. that are tiny and already kind of at capacity. So we really needed this space. And then on top of the activities, what the coalition has done is that we've invited different agencies to come join us to give their services. So we've had people come and show rent relief, people coming to show, you know, what are my rights as a tenant? We have the New York City Department of Health come and offer their services. And that's been a wonderful thing because people sometimes are not privileged enough to like be able to take an afternoon off, go to a city agency or a private agency or a nonprofit and and wait two or three hours. And what do they do with their kids in that time? The services are right outside their door. And so... We find really wonderful ways as we go on, more and more things to offer on the open street that have really been appreciated by the community. So all of this has happened in a couple of years. Right. This is our, we're celebrating our third year now. Yep. And did the city give any objection? I would think that the city would be objecting all over the place. So the first year and a half, we pretty much had free reign just because of the pandemic. And so we were able to try all these different kinds of programs that I mentioned, Mm -hmm. some of which worked, some of which didn't. And just to sort of, every day we tried something new. Someone, the English second language happened because this Venezuelan couple was like, look, we've been studying English forever, Mm -hmm. but we never get a chance to speak it. Mm -hmm. You know, is there a way that we could do a conversation group? And we're like, yeah, tomorrow. Meet us tomorrow and we'll do a conversation group once a week for two hours every week. And so all these things really happened organically from the community or someone's like, oh, I know how to, actually my husband, I can teach salsa dancing, right? One of the first things we did was Sapa, which is a South American game 
where you it's like sort of a coin toss that you toss into a frog's mouth, which is a saboid or a toad's mouth. And initially that was all adults, but then all these kids asking wanted to play that too. So then we had an adult evening and then another one we have the kids. So all these things just happen basically from the community. We have a wonderful woman who was a great hula hooper and wanted to teach people in the neighborhood how to hula hoop. So once a week for three years, we have a hula hoop and jump rope classes. One of which our mayor actually dropped by our hula hoop and he wasn't so great at hula hoop, but he was really good at jump rope. <laughs> when, I would guess that the population density on the streets now is much higher than when the cars were there. So in terms of like value to people, it looks like it would be higher. So much higher. I mean, if you look, at, even if I'm on my way here to this, I'm counting all this big traffic jam and I look and it's really just four cars stuck in the inter intersection, four people. Meanwhile, on either side of the street, on the sidewalk, there were probably 11 on one side, maybe a dozen or so on the other. And we're all being waiting, trying to cross the street for four individuals who actually passed the light. And so they're stuck and now they're blocking the whole intersection. But it's just four people. Yeah, people talk about so much like, Josh, what will things be like without progress, without all these things? And when, I mean, for me, unplugging the apartment, what I do, okay. I'm not going to watch TV. I mean, there's no TV here. And even using the internet is, I got to plug stuff in. So <laughs> I, I don't want to do that much. So really quickly, since I unplugged last May, over the summer, there's lots of sunlight. So I'm reading a lot more. But then even in the dark, like I was, I started singing, not taking lessons, but just singing. And I'd written down the words to the lyrics of the songs that I wanted to practice singing. And with the lights off, I couldn't read it. So I went to the park and would just sing there. And what I, also, I volunteer a lot. Three nights a week, I go to stores that are going to throw, not stores, but the delivery places, the 15-minute delivery places. They get rid of their inventory every night, and they were throwing it away. And someone else organized this community outdoor fridge and cupboard. And so three nights a week, I go to the stores and take what they're going to throw away. Perfectly good. They're just going to throw it away. And I take it to the fridge. And people are like, Josh... No, other people don't have time for that. I'm like, I'm not watching TV. I've never seen Game of Thrones. But your type of volunteerism is exactly what we tapped into in our neighborhood. And it's what happens when you don't have, when you have fossil fuels or uranium or whatever doing everything for you, you don't do things. Well, the fact is, I think during the height of COVID in our neighborhood and all being locked in apartments, sometimes two or three generations in a studio apartment. I mean, this, this is what it is in an immigrant neighborhood, right? So people are could not wait to get outside and they really appreciated things they could do outside and things that and things that really were physically active right because you're cooped up all day even people who have great jobs and we're still ones at the breakfast nook the wife is in the living everybody's holding their own private zooms all around the house so just to get outside and to be active was a boom and when you talk about singing we have for about eight months every year that coincides sort of with the school year a young man, I think he's 13 or 14, who started, now he's older, a glee club. He wanted, to, and so every Saturday morning, would ha, has children meet him, and he teaches them how to sing. And outdoors. It didn't even hit me. It, it, as you were saying it, it hit me that I'm thinking of, yeah, without using so much power, I want to sing more. I want to dance more. I want to do things. All these things that people have done for 300,000 years, humans have been around without power grids. And... 
That stuff is less now. I mean, yeah. I well, can... most of us grew up. I mean, like we, you know, I grew up and we had to get out of the house. Like there's no TV, right? Get out of the house <laughs> was the admonition, right? Uh, I think my dad used to say, go play in traffic. But, <laughs> but basically you were supposed to be outside. And so that's what we did growing up. And I think that's even, we just, it's kind of challenging, but we have our nephews sometimes for a few weeks at a time, sometimes by surprise. Uh-huh. And to tr- pry their electronic devices yeah. from their hands is such a challenge. And, you know, very hard to do it. But once we do it and they're outside and they're having fun and they're running and they come home out of breath and tired and they sleep like a rock because they're active. But people don't realize that we still have that choice yeah, to exactly. put down those devices and get outside. Yeah, if the only choice is a small little piece of sidewalk and it's really dangerous out in the street, that's not a great right, choice. It's not worth risking your life for, yeah. right? And I mean, like, you don't want to risk your life, but if you can go for a... I like in walking on 34th Avenue to walking on the boardwalk, right? Either in Rockaway or Coney Island. So you're walking, you're socializing, and as you walk along, you see all these other things happening, right? There are people riding their bikes, there are people who are riding their scooters, there are people sitting and laughing and... There are dance classes. All those same kind of things happen in any kind of public space. And so we brought that to our formerly car-choked street, and now we have it right outside our door. And that's and this is happening all over the city. So 34th Avenue did not happen by itself. It happened with all of the our neighbors pitching in and having ideas like yours, like, oh, I don't want to sit home. I want to do something. This is what I like to do. And like, great, do it. Yeah. <laughs> For me, solo doing it is interesting. But it didn't occur to me until you said it. There might be, there, I mean, within the half mile of here, there's going to be like thousands of people who are doing something and hundreds who, and dozens who at least want to sing. Yeah, there was a woman who wanted to do a walk every morning. So she asked if she could do a flyer. And then she had a whole, I don't know how long, maybe lasted a year. And every week, Thursday morning, I think seven in the morning, she, there was a group of people who went for the entire round robin of the 34th Avenue. So once it starts, it just keeps going. Like you're not trying anymore. I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of organization at the beginning. So in the beginning, it was basically inviting every single person that we could possibly imagine to do bring activities to the street. We still, anybody, we welcome anybody. We help them, right? So we'll help public. Like if you want to do your your, your singing delivery to, <laughs> to the community fridge, uh-huh. we'll help you with a flyer and we will distribute it in all of our social media and our WhatsApp group. And so you'll probably find a few like-minded souls to do that with you. That's the kind of thing that's happened, that continues to happen. What we do now is we do invite city services to come because we found that's for a lot of people, maybe even living 10 or 20 years, not only recent immigrants, but people who've lived here don't know a lot of times what all these different nonprofits or city agencies can do. Mm-hmm. And by bringing them right to the neighborhood, right on the street, without having to make an appointment or figure out where, where they go, you can go right there and talk to someone, you know, human rights you know, they'll tell you what your rights are, or if your rights have been violated, or if what's happening at work is falls under discrimination. I mean, there's people who really help you. We have Asian Americans for Equality. They've come and they say, "Well, what's my rights as a roommate?" Mm-hmm. And they'll, you know, they have an hour class right on the street, and they'll tell you and take you through the different rights as as a tenant, as a roommate, and those are all super helpful information that people might otherwise not be able to get or access. Because there's this, it's like they call it the third space. There's like homework and then there's bars. There used to be parks, but the parks are getting smaller and smaller or less and less. So this is like a, I think it feels like give people the space 
Right. And they want, we want to socialize. That's right. And if you don't, you, there's lots of, I see lots of people sitting by themselves on the median with a book, right? And they're happy as, as can be, right? And the other thing is, all of those things can exist at the same time because we have 26 blocks. Mm -hmm. So there are plenty of people who are sitting by themselves in the peace and quiet under a shade tree reading. And then a, a block over, people are dancing salsa and, you know, <laughs> then there's a, a gaggle of kids riding their bicycles as fast as they can to school or to the park. I think I remember by the schools, do, are there now giant planters and the traffic calming mechanisms permanent? So at two of our schools, we have, we're bookended on the 69th Street. We have a school, PS398, and that's a school plaza. So there's no cars allowed in front of that school, which is amazing. And that enables... That school, they do so many cultural programs and different things out on the street. They do have a, an outdoor space that's on the roof. By the time you get the little kids to go all the way to the roof, the period is over and you have to come back down. Right now, they go right outside and they're able to do lots of fun, amazing things right in front of their school with all this new space. Mm -hmm. At the other end, at PS 149 on 93rd Street, we have a double school plaza. We do a lot of our programming there. It's right on the border of Jackson Heights and Corona. And that's full of activity. Uh, in fact, we're running a program now, 3 p.m. to 7 p.m. through August, which we have, we normally have one thing each day, but because we have students helping us or off for the summer, we have every single day arts and crafts, hula hoop, jump rope, chess. We have a math corner where someone, we have a, a high school kid who can teach you up to calculus. We have a reading corner if you have trouble reading. We still have our English as second language. All these things are going on and that block while we have other city agencies and nonprofits there to offer services. So while the, your kid is playing jump rope or learning how to play chess, you can figure out how do I get my rent paid or where do I go to, to get my landlord to make sure he fixes this leak, whatever, whatever, whatever it is. For people not familiar with Queens, I believe Jackson Heights is the highest number of languages spoken in a, like a square mile or something like that. Yeah, so Jackson Heights, Elmo's Corona is the densest part of Queens. Mm -hmm. So it's the, of all of Queens. And we also have, I think we speak 167 languages and I mean, there's every single kind of nationality and our English second language classes often reflect that. If you look, everybody's from a different country mm -hmm. who joins us. It's, I think, the most ethnically, definitely in the United States, is the most ethnically diverse place in the United States, mm -hmm. that area, Elmhurst and Jackson Heights. And were there traffic calming things that are permanent now? Like things yes. where traffic cars have to like kind of zigzag? and so, so you're still allowed to enter to park and you're allowed to leave. So what you can do, it's not a through street any longer. So you can't go from street to street. But you can go to that, you know, you can park in front of your building and you can leave. It's just not a through street anymore. And you can only go five miles an hour. But that parking still exists. All that still exists. On the edges, what the city has done is done bump outs or bulb outs. And what that is just widen, it sort of shortens the crossing. So seniors and other people who are mobility impaired have a shorter amount to cross the street. And it also enables us to put planters and greenery and hopefully in the future, even more greenery. So it really makes the street much more pleasant as well. But it does shorten the width, so it's much easier to cross the street. And what they did, they're doing all, all over the city, they're doing daylighting, which is the very last space at the intersection, leaving that free. So, so that delivery people? So, no, so you can see, so you can cross the street more easily. 
so you're not surprised by a turning car. And so they've done a lot of great traffic calming treatments. They're doing all over the city. They're very noticeable on 34th Avenue because it just makes it so much more safer and nicer. So they must like that you're there because the people doing that want to do more of those, I would guess, and they're, they welcome that you're, you've made it easier because I would guess. Oh, I'm sorry, the DOT? Yeah. DOT has been a great partner. We work with them very closely. They, from the beginning, tirelessly were out there in all these different languages, holding Zooms, holding in-person, on the street, you know, both in a zillion different Zooms and I don't know how many different languages to really try to get feedback. And most of what you see is feedback directly from the community. Were you surprised at DOT being helpful? I would have expected that they, because I would expect they'd say like, we want, no, that we need more cars going through. So DOT had, you know, we had some really good DOT leaders. Started on this project, started under Polly Trottenberg. And she now works for the president. And she was amazing. And she was one of the proponents of open streets. And we had Hank Gutman, and now we have Idanis Rodriguez. And all of those people who have come and come to 34th Avenue and see, like when I walked with Polly Trottenberg, She's like, wow, these lo this longer open street works a lot nicer. It's like a real walk. Whereas the one or two blocks are, are nice for space mm -hmm. and activities. But there's nothing like being able to get out of your house, clear your head, and walk for a mile or so and back. I mean, that's, or even on a bike ride, right? Say you're afraid, uh, which many people are in New York City. So many people had these cobweb bicycles with flat tires in their house, stuck in their apartment, in their basement. And they cleaned them off, filled up the tires. And you can safely ride one, three, you know, so it's 2.6 miles, you know, if you do the round robin mm -hmm. and it's safe. You're not worried about getting hit by a car. A lot of people have really learned how to bike on 34th Avenue and now explore much further and further. And DOT has been very great. They've really fixed the connections going to, to the city and to Sunnyside and Astoria. So it's a lot safer and they've put in protected lanes that connect to 34th Avenue. They're not finished, but they're doing like a really good job. So physically protected lane after you get from 34th Avenue. And that's eventually going to take you all the way to Manhattan under a physically protected lane. It connects to Northern Boulevard. And so that's amazing. So I wrote that Northern Boulevard years ago. I remember riding it and it was like on one side, there's no cross streets. So I could like ride for a long way if I'm heading east. Then they put a bike lane but there's no protection. Now they have bollards and things. And now they're, so they're testing three different types of protection to see which works best. No cars. That's the best. <laughs> that's the best. That's why I'm telling on 34th Avenue, I think it was Fast Company. They worked with Strava. And the first year, this is 1,220% increase in the amount of bicyclists on wow. 34th Avenue. Wow. <laughs> 1,000. <000. laughs> That's probably starting from one and going to... Right, but it's a, it was a huge number because really... Getting from zero is like a really big deal. Yeah. And people like I, who, you know, avid city bike rider, avid bike rider my whole life, I very rarely rode in Jackson Heights, never on 34th Avenue. We only had one bike lane in the door zone. And it was like yeah. the old kind, you know, the really, yeah. the really narrow ones. So you had a car that basically grazing your elbow on one side... And any, if anybody opened that door, it was over. Mm. So it was really silly to ever, ever bike on there. And now that's like a primary conduit. And I have friends who like come over 34 and said, Jim, it takes me longer, but it's so pleasant to just be able to 
goes even I'm going slower because it's not a fast ride because it's a busy road, busy street with people, but it's so pleasant. Tell so everybody I got a coffee cup holder for my bike there because I'm sipping. I'm not going fast. I wind up talking to people, and it's more of a socially slow ride. And someone will ride up next to you, and you'll ride with them. It's very different from your other New York experience bike rides. <laughs> Yeah, it's just saying you're not an activist. You're not someone who you're not like a pro bike person. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm a volunteer for TA for many years, Transportation Alternatives, and I've always been a safe street activist, a pedestrian activist, and a bicycle activist after City Bike came in, because before most of my bike riding experience was in the Bronx and Rockaway, in parks or on the boardwalk in safe spaces, but when City Bike came in 2013. And I'm riding in the city, and I'm like, oh, my God, this is so dangerous. And I'm looking over, and I am almost get hit by a car, and I see the guy who almost hit me is actually with a, his index finger typing a text on an iPad in the passenger seat. He's not, he is nowhere connected. He's driving with his knee, holding a cup of coffee, using the other finger on an iPad. And this is, I never, until I was on a bike, I never saw this really dangerous behavior that drivers were doing on our streets. And that's really what all these near misses that I experienced myself, and then I started to see everywhere, and I really wanted to do something about that. I got to tell a story about one time when I rear-ended a car. I was in the street, and I wasn't really paying attention, and I rear-ended this car. Now, I was walking on foot, <laughs> so I got dust on myself. The person in the car didn't notice. <laughs> and if you do this while you're walking, it's not that bad a problem. <laughs> so now emergency vehicles. I would think that most people would say, I think people who don't know what they're talking about or who don't have experience would say, we need ambulances to get through. We need fire trucks to get through. This is going to mess everything up. And I would guess that the actual experience is that it's much better for them because pedestrians can get, I mean, the siren's going to be going. So I live on 34th Avenue and I've lived there for a very, very long time. And for many, many years I had to contend with, and I live a block away from the precinct. Like the precinct's right down the block from me. And the fire department's a few blocks away. So the amount of ambulances, and I live in what's called a NORC, a naturally occurring retirement community. So there's this whole group of buildings that are deemed naturally occurring retirement communities because people aged in place. They got their apartments in 1958, and they're in their 80s and 90s, or they're, and they still have their apartments because it's everything in the neighborhood is just a stone's throw away. And so... That's why you hear a lot of ambulances and things like that. And it's before the open street, you would hear everybody ringing the bell, screaming, there's a double park, unattended double park car. How, can, does anybody know who the driver is, the rider is? How do we, and it was just honking and screaming and someone would come and ring all the bells in the building to try to find the Aaron car. Yeah. Now, they move the barricade out of the way and they zoom down a zillion miles an hour. Or, and the other thing is, we still have 26 side streets, mm -hmm. right? So if you have, if there's a fire on 83 and on 34th Avenue, you come down 83rd Street or you come down, you know, but basically you can, in an emergency, and I've seen them, they can zoom right through. Even if the kids are in playing, like. Yeah, because people move. Yeah. People, it's very easy to move people. What's not easy is an unintended car or a car that's being blocked by another car. And that was always the case. And still on some of the side streets, you'll see unattended car and a whole bunch of people behind it, honking, trying to get that owner to come down from whatever yeah. he went upstairs for. 
Uh, so that still happens all over the city, but it doesn't happen on 34th Avenue because you can you have a clear shot all the way. I'm curious, before that, did the fire department or the police department say, did they expect that it would be easier for them? I mean, historically, that's happened. No, so, but did so they... the thing is, look, city agencies are no different than people in the community. The status quo is hard for anybody, right? To change the status quo is hard. So, of course, any change, normally these institutions are not pro-change, right? <laughs> they don't want anything like, oh, we don't want to change anything different. So, yeah, but you can be on the street and see that it's much easier. to. First of all, the barricades, often you can get through, but you can certainly knock, the, you can zoom right through if it, was a, if it was a terrible emergency, or you can move it out of the way. And don't forget, there are people on the street. So if you're on the street and you see an ambulance, you just move it, and they go right through. They don't even have, no, no one has to do anything. Because people are, will actually jump and move a barricade right away, of course. And are there any bus routes on this avenue? There are not. Okay. Is that an issue? Yeah. So when, if you want to do an open street in your neighborhood, one of the things you want to make sure of, right, because anybody in New York City is welcome to open and to get a group of people together and open, do their own open street, right, and work with DOT. Mm-hmm. But one of the things you want to do is you want to make sure that it's, that it isn't a bus route, right, or to make accommodations if it is. And you want to make sure that it doesn't have a lot of curb cuts, right? So you don't want a, a lot of driveways. You don't want to have a lot of necessary incursions on your street. So you want to pick the ones with the least, you, you know, try to avoid a parking garage, try to avoid anything high uh, business that attracts a lot of cars, which in New York City is not hard to do. But you want to make sure that you, you know, you pick a street that will inconvenience, to me, the least amount of people, right? Because, And it is a slight inconvenience, right? So there is a slight inconvenience if you're a driver. Maybe it takes you a couple of seconds because you, you have to ride, go around the corner, right? Or you have to move a barricade if you have to get to a particular block. But the amount of joy, the amount of fresh air, the amount, all the benefits really outweigh the slight inconvenience of a few people, Right. And basically, that means you stay in your climate-controlled vehicle a few seconds longer. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I'm talking about seconds, where a kid can have a safe place and not die or not get injured and be able to have autonomy and bike themselves or walk themselves to school. I think there's no, yeah. no comparison. So restaurants, are there restaurants along this route? There are not. Because this neighborhood, every block has restaurants. So I would guess that restaurants would prefer it. Certainly Times Square. So for, oh, like if you go to Vanderbilt Avenue, it's another wonderful open street in Brooklyn. And that's chock full of restaurants and bakeries and all sorts of businesses. And they run with their bid, I know the open street there. And it's night and day. It turns from like a car choke sewer to this beautiful outdoor space with people biking and walking and eating, sitting on the median. And it's so much more pleasant and easier to grab food, grab anything, and just sit and enjoy and eat. So now, so the listeners know when we were scheduling this by phone, I was after we finish this, we're going to walk around the neighborhood a bit if you have time. And because I'm thinking of Greenwich Avenue, is on the face of it, it's this diagonal. So I would think if people want to go northwest, they're probably thinking, oh, I can skip a couple of blocks. But actually, it's got several lights. Along the way, so it's. I don't think it's faster for a car. Yeah, if it's not part of the grid, that's why Broadway here in New York City should be pedestrianized from end to end. And you see the recent mayoral 
ribbon cutting with Adonis from DOT, they just, another new section of Broadway became more pedestrian. And I eventually, and it's diagonal, so it's really not the best way to drive, but what a way to bike, what a way to walk, what a way to uh, get, to breathe life into all these businesses. And you can walk Broadway any day and you'll see all those things happening. So if it's, I think almost any street is a candidate. You just, if it's an emergency, you know, if you just want to make sure that you're not impeding a, a public transportation or things like that. And now you were saying that during the pandemic in, out there, everyone wanted to get out. They wanted to be outdoors. Now in this neighborhood in the pandemic, the Northwest corner of Washington Square Park got hit hard with fentanyl and crack and heroin and I think the police were not really, I don't know if they were looking the other way or what, but so the Northwest Corner of Washington Square Park and then Waverly Place leading to the West 4th Street subway stop, there's like this corridor of, I mean, when I walk down on 6th Avenue and turn left on Waverly, my thought is always, what this time? Because it's going to be, I mean, an encampment or, I mean, sometimes I walk through and there's people with the needles in their arms. Sometimes it's clear. For a while, the police put these, this big generator and, and lights. And it's like anyone can tell the difference between a generator and a cop. Like it didn't deter anything. In any case, I think so when I've gone to community groups around here, they're like, what can we do about this drug stuff? Because a lot of people, there's a lot of people with brownstones and people will shoot up on the stairs. And I think that they would think less cars would mean less traffic, which would mean more drugs. But I'm guessing that less cars would mean more foot traffic, which would mean... I'll give you an example. There's a park in Jackson Heights, a tiny little park at Pop Park. And I was asked to do what I do on 34th Avenue in this park because they had a problem similar to what you were describing. So I started exercise classes there and I invited musicians to come for many concerts and we put chairs and tables out. And during that time, that park became a much more livable, nicer space. And yes, there were intransient homeless that kind of live in that park. But they also enjoyed these things and the concerts and things. And they are people too. And we also invited these agencies to try to give them services. I mean, it's an ongoing battle that we have across the city between substance addiction and homelessness and getting services to people. We do a very bad job in New York City on delivering that. Not a lot of, I think the United States does a bad job in helping these people who need help. That can't be, that's the much bigger question. And that's the same reason like, oh, we don't want to put a bench there. Oh, we don't want to put a chair there. Oh, someone might sit on that. <laughs> and so that's, you know, some homeless person might sit on that bench if you were to bench there. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing that, First of all, if you have a zillion benches and you have lots of different places, you had lots of different public bathrooms and lots of different seats everywhere, then there wouldn't be this conglomeration of congregation of people because there'd be many more places to sit, mm -hmm. right? Everybody should be able to sit down when they need to rest, right? So we do a bad job on that. And that's a different conversation on how to help those people. Those people exist. They're all over our city. They try to, you know, I, I don't think it's great to congregate them in our parks. I think because then there's whole swaths of lots of different parks in the city that people don't bring their children to, that people don't go to because they feel uncomfortable. And at the same time, those people are, you know, I've talked to them. They're really nice people. 
And unfortunately, I've seen them when they come out of the, there's a local hospital, Amherst Hospital. I've seen when they come out and they're dressed and their family's with them. And for those moments, they're not on the particular drug of choice or alcohol. They just have these terrible addiction problems. And it's very hard in the city to get help for those things. And so they wind up these beautifully clean shaven, freshly showered people that discharged wind up back in the park that I work at in distress. And since I've been there, I think there's been at least two times where a dead body has been discovered in this little park in Jackson Heights, 82nd Street. And that's a failure, really, of the city services and helping these people. We do a bad job. I had a guy on this podcast who wrote a book on fentanyl, and before that it was on heroin. And, I mean, the supply of the stuff is the Sacklers and the Oxycontin pushing it caused a lot of addiction, which then self-perpetuated because the supply started being met with fentanyl and other these things that aren't limited. So I think you could have the best treatment in the world. And if the supply is great enough, you can just keep overwhelming it. But that's a whole other thing. What I'm really thinking of is the, which is not to say that we shouldn't help people as in, in the most effective way possible, but I'm thinking of people who live, say someone who lives on a block in between the park and the subway station. Or also on 7th Avenue, there's a lot. So there's a couple of streets that I think people living there might think we want the cars to have more eyes on the street. But I think that fewer cars would be actually more eyes. Right. I mean, just, just think of, of when you're growing up, was it better to have a, a cop on the beat that walked around and knew everybody's name and all the storekeepers' names and all the people's names? Or was it, is it better for him to be in a car driving at 50 miles an hour? Which do you prefer as a citizen, Right. It's the same thing if you opened up that street, right? You'll have lots of physical people on the street. We noticed that in this particular park in Jackson Heights, by having moms with strollers and older women and people from the hospital on their lunch break in that park, made that park a lot nicer and safer and also helped get those people's services because like, oh, this guy's in bad shape. He needs help. You know, a lot of people who pass out because right, another citizen is there, another person is there, they're able to call 911 and get that person help. Whereas who knows what would happen and does happen when no one's there. How about litter and garbage? So we, litter and garbage, when we first opened the open street, we had a lot of people go up and down and pick up garbage because we wanted it to be extra clean and we wanted to... <clears throat> We sort of wanted to minimize any impact this open street would have. So we really worked hard to make sure we had volunteers go up and clean it. Right now, the city offers HORT, which is the Horticultural Society. And besides checking on the barricades, which we used to do with all volunteers, the city now provides that service. Mm. Not every, not for holidays, but for the other days, we still do some of that work. But they also tidy up the street as they go along, making sure the barricades are in place. So. You're going to have way more people. There's going to be, and depending. So, like, if it's a business, if it's a business uh, district, you'll have ours is residential, so we don't really have that problem. And ours, many of the people who are using it live right. If I have my bottle of water, I'm just going to throw it in probably my house, right? <laughs> I don't think that's the American way anymore. I think that. Well, but it's really if you you can you can really ride our street anytime, uh-huh. and you're not going to see any increase in. In litter. Okay. And how about 
do you ever think of like turning it all to grass? And a couple of things I think what I would love to see more of is like playgrounds where there are cars, grass, things that are living and farmer's markets. So every Saturday we have from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. We have a gardening club and they sort of attack the median and attack the schools with a ragtag army of volunteers. Some blocks look really beautiful because maybe someone from the surrounding buildings, you know, plans something a little nicer. It's not uniform, but it's, it's all done with love and sometimes, you know, in very inexperienced gardeners and young children. But we do that every Saturday from 10 to 1, from one end of our street to the other. Mm -hmm. And then we pay special attention to the schools in the corridor to make them as green and lush as possible. And we partner with, you know, we're all volunteer and we get very little money. So we partner with sometime agencies. Oh, what can we do? Can you buy flowers so we can plant these beautiful flowers that uh, come up every year on the corners? Or really try to do as many things like that and as greenify and make more beautiful the area. And you're not trying to make that happen anymore. I'm guessing like people are doing this. Like there's no way this could be all top down. No, no, no. First of all, none of it's ever been really top down. But we say from 10 to 1, who would like to help us? You know, and someone will say, you know, I really want the one on our block. So like, okay, so next week it's on your block. Like people... People decide among themselves what areas. It's self-perpetuating. Right. right. So they, every, it's a 10 to 1. What we do is we supply the gloves and the tools, right? And so we always have like a sort of steady volunteer there to have the gloves, to have the tools. And then we also say, look, it's very hard to water this. Like, don't be like, we also, we don't want to be cognizant of what you put in the ground so that it looks nice and is sustainable too, right? But so we have people who know what they're doing. But mostly it's people who just want to really make a market and volunteer. Have you talked to Girl in OC about bringing farmer's markets there? So we have a farmer's market that pre-exists the open street. Uh-huh. And that's been in operation for many years in Jackson Heights. And it's on 34th Avenue. And that's every Sunday morning. It's starting at like, I think seven, not that early up on a Sunday, but I get there. But it starts at 7 and it runs to just after the lunchtime. And that's every Sunday. Is the open street having an effect on it? Is it bigger, smaller, or the same? What you find is... That so a lot of people stay. So it's I think Parlance would be stickier if it was a website, but <laughs> people stay a lot longer. So just like I told you about after school is like a long drawn out thing now because people are socializing and talking with each other. Yeah. Kids are playing. The same thing happens in the farmers market. So before you'd go get your vegetables and head back home, right? But now you you know there's a a woman who uh, you go to the Mexican cart and you get this like tostada, you get something delicious, mm-hmm. and you sit on the median. And you grab maybe a coffee from somewhere else or a fresh, from, uh, there's a fresh bread. There's you know, a lot of great things to this farmer's market. And you sit on the median and you partake in it and you talk and hang out with your neighbors. What is it in the wintertime? Is it as, I mean, you said the programming becomes less. Is it less active or is it? So, so it turns out that runners are all year round, right? Bicyclists are all year round. Walkers, there's a cadre of walkers that are all year round. Our Zumba is almost all year round. Our dance classes are almost all year round. Our, and when I say almost, it's like if it's if there's a lot of snow on the ground, then we're not going to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Things like yoga do not happen in the winter because that's on the ground. Our races are all year round. All of those things. Anything physical is all year round. The services become much less as the temperature drops. But it's, remember, like having the open street, even if no one used it, 
Mm. There's much less pollution. It's much less, it's much more quiet, mm. right? So these are a lot of schools. Noise pollution is pollution. Noise pollution is pollution. And so all these schools along our corridor, all these thousands of kids get a much quieter environment. So even if no one used the street, it's still a big win for the neighborhood because it's quieter and nicer. And it's always safe to walk. It's always safe to hop on your bike. So that's a big win. Yes, less people use it in the, in the temperatures, but you'll be surprised about how many people use it. We have, there's a lot of Colombian and Mexican festival events that we do in December and they're super well attended. And we have the mariachis there and we have, you know, there's a Colombian thing in the uh, Las Velitas, which is they have candles and they, these things, tons of people come and enjoy these events. And our Zumba class has all those hard Zumba people in the street in November, in, in January, working out. How many hours a week do you personally spend on this? Okay, so it ebbs and flows. In the beginning, there was a number of us, not just me. There's, remember, there's like, we have 149 people that are on our active volunteer database. Mm-hmm. On a given day, two, three, five, ten, depending on the day, we'll be volunteering their time on our open street. We also work with the city. So we have SYEP students, which are high school and college students that get paid by the city to do internships at nonprofits and businesses around the city. Mm-hmm. And so we have some interns. And so that enables some of us hardcore volunteers to take a break. And from 3 to 7 p.m., they're on the street every single day with a supervisor and the, we have volunteers that check in with the supervisor to see if they need our help, both when they first get there and, and when they leave. And even sometimes pop in in the middle to see if they need anything. But we're trying to do, we want this to work all over the city. And so we're really constantly looking for the lowest cost way to deliver the most amount of services. And we really like really the city to contribute more because we think it's a great thing that any neighborhood would really benefit from. Because I'm thinking, if I, you know, I want to get this started here. And I know if it went the other way, if it started in Greenwich Village, I know that, oh, you're so privileged, all you people. It's like you have all the money. And because that happened when the cops were kicking people out of Washington Square Park, everyone's like, oh, all the rich people are getting the cops to kick people out. And I'm like, no one asked the cops to do that. No one. I mean, we, I got kicked out, too. <laughs> But in any case, having it started there, it's like, I feel like there's going to be a lot of people that I can talk to that know about what, or have worked with you and other open streets. And it's going to be much easier now as a result of, of people having had the success, people having seen what works and solved problems that, or solved things that might've been problems, or I guess learn that things that people would say would be problems aren't really problems. Well, I mean, mostly what you really want is you want to develop a space that it's just quieter and nicer than most of the city, and the city will help you. I mean, they if you get your the city will, for example, they brought us furniture. We used to use paint buckets when we first first seating when we had our ESL classes and our classes. We went to local places that were throwing out paint buckets, and that was our seating for all our classes and for a lot of our just socializing. And people brought their beach chairs and other chairs. And then the city now supplies us with these really nice kind of cocktail tables and chairs mm-hmm. that we can put out and have classes with or just use and socialize. And you'll see them all along our street, out and ready to use. All right. So I now want to share this quote that I told you before we recorded how I said it. Maybe if you remember it differently. 
So we're, I'm out there at 34th Avenue. This was a month ago, maybe a few weeks ago. And everyone's out in the street. They're all having what it, it looks like everyone's having a great time. And I say, this must be great that all these people must love what you do, what you've done, all the things that you've helped create. And you go, and I think I said something like, something how they must have not liked it and now they must love it. And you said, there are people who don't like this. And I get hate mail. And then you paused and you go, and I love it. Well, I mean, the thing is, if whenever you make anything, make any change, people are always going to be so super upset and push against that change. Mm-hmm. And... <laughs> And you are going to ruffle some feathers whenever you make any change to anything in this city. And we are a city of people who don't sit back. We, <laughs> we let our feelings and opinions known. Mm-hmm. The challenge is that you really want to bring as many people to the table as you possibly can. But then you find out when people give you a list of things that they don't like and you address them all and they're still against it, they're like, okay, you're just against the change. So, you know, because if someone has a valid complaint, of course, we want to address it. We want to make this work for as many people as possible. But then you find out that those people are just some negative people in this world, and they just are going to harp and harp and harp and harp, and some of them have very loud voices. But like as you saw, the amount of people who just quietly enjoy the space sort of erases all that negativity pretty well. Have there been things that unforeseen that people brought up? Like, what are some examples that people brought up that you didn't think of and then you dealt with? Well, in the very beginning, we were very conscious of the reason, one of the reasons the garden committee started was because we wanted to make sure that we were always cleaning. It's not only gardening. We also clean the area that when we go. We wanted to make sure that, because someone's oh, isn't this going to be messier and dirtier? We're like, oh, you know what? We're going to have people and make sure that doesn't happen. So we had some some volunteers during the week and then we had a big cleanup on Saturday and it turned out that that never got to be a complaint because we addressed it. We addressed the what if. <laughs> there are things like, oh, what if an ambulance has to come here? And like, well, ambulance can come here. Accessorite. So accessorite is one of those things like people who don't use it are like, oh, you know, there's a lot of people who are worried. Accessorite is for people in wheelchairs and mobility issues. Right. And... We have on our volunteer, we have a gentleman who has been confined to a wheelchair for many years as a professor at a, a college here in the city, and he uses the street with his family. And so he is our point person on mobility issues, and he has a counterpart at DOT that also works with mobility issues. And on these streets, we had all these hypothetical, oh, we said, okay, tell us when this, when accessory couldn't get to your door, and what's, oh... It wasn't me, it's my sister's brother's cousin's next door neighbor's brother who told me. Okay. And this guy went to all these meetings to try to find these mythical people who were not getting served because we take that seriously. Because, you know, my mom used Accessoride for many years and she stopped because they would leave her a block away. I mean, Accessoride is not the best service in the world, but we want to make sure that, and I watch it and I'm very tuned, we watch them very closely. Now, my mom said the worst thing about being accessorized was when you're getting out of the vehicle, the cars, a couple don't see you. So everybody's honking and my mother will turn red and get nervous trying to get out of the vehicle. And on things like on 34th, that's not happening. You can take 20 minutes to get out of that vehicle. There's no one honking behind you. It's a much more relaxing environment. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of people who are hypothetically worried that, about people that they're never worried about. Mm-hmm. You find that in these situations, people are super worried about people they've never met 
and about issues they were never worried about before. <laughs> but we actually try to address them and we want to make sure. So we did, we, like I said, we try to do all the what ifs in our own mind and from the community. And we, so that's why we have a gentleman who uses the street in a wheelchair to really gauge to see, does he get around or what? Does, how does he feel? And he talks and sort of collects that information from people who are in a similar situation. When you think of Greenwich Village, what do you think of like taking that here? So in, during the pandemic and after the pandemic, you had a, still on the Lower East Side, the, you have an open street, which is great. And during the pandemic, they had from Washington Square Park, you could almost ride several blocks for a while on an open street. So I think, first of all, I think you can do an open street anywhere in Manhattan. I don't think cars are super unnecessary, you know, in the city. You know, you talk about a tool, right? It's like, like a sledgehammer when, you know, when you need like a butter knife, right? Uh -huh. So you certainly don't need, most people don't need a car in the city. And the thing is, if only the people who actually really need a car in the city, then there's no problem, right? There's no issue. It's that not every single person in New York City can drive their own personal gigantic SUV and have the city livable, right? So in, I think the village should be, should be open streets everywhere. I think there's so many places. As I was walking to meet you, I'm like, yeah, this is, <laughs> why are there cars here? I mean, like, yeah. as I told you, when crossing the street, like, there's, if you count up all the people, there's like 25 of us waiting for these four people in SUVs that probably don't even live in New York City and probably don't spend their money here. They're just zooming, you know, somewhere and they're in our city and they'd be much better served if they were on foot. Yeah. Here's, I love my plan is take all the bike lanes in the city and all the car lanes in the city and just swap them. Give the cars the bike lanes <laughs> and give the bikes the car lanes. That would work. That would work. Yeah. <laughs> what about the avenues like 6th Avenue, 7th Avenue? I mean, I think that you're going to see that over the years, we're going to have to shrink those, really grow the sidewalks. Mm -hmm. And you see that on 8th Avenue, you've seen the city has brought out the sidewalk and then pushed the bike lane further into the, to the street. So we are already doing that. I think there's more throughput, actually, even for the cars. Right. So the thing is that all these things, there are, I can tell you that there are way more people that use 34th Avenue now than did when it was just cars, right? And the way more people who use the neighborhood live in the neighborhood. That's the other thing. Like, can you address, look, if you're a person who lives in your neighborhood and takes your elevator to your garage and leaves the neighborhood and drives to Long Island, yeah, you're not going to really like the open street in your particular neighborhood because you don't patronize any of the businesses. You don't walk any of the sidewalks. You don't walk in the street. You don't enjoy those benefits because you're really leaving the city to do those things. But anybody who lives and breathes New York City is certainly going to enjoy an open street close to their home. Have you read The Power Broker and Death and Life in Great American Cities? I have The Power Broker, and I have read excerpts my whole life. I have never actually read it cover to cover. <laughs> I didn't mean to read it, and I, I was like just flipping through the first couple of pages, and I couldn't stop. It was like one of the best written things I've ever read. And then, you know, I have this dream of rewilding the Cross Bronx Expressway, and have you ever heard of Drew Gardens in the Bronx? There's a lot of community gardens. It's one particular one where I, I was invited to do some of my cooking workshops there because I do this no-waste stuff. And it's this park that was just covered with uh, spare tires and people threw their old washing machines there. And I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, I think, some neighborhood people just went and like, cleaned it up and they got a park out of it. And it's, I mean, 
I love Central Park and Drew Gardens is like equal to me. I mean, it's significantly smaller than Central Park, but as much as corporate, you could easily walk past it without not even seeing it's there. But it's got the only freshwater river in the city is the Bronx River comes through it and they've got canoes and stuff. And when I went there last time, last fall, I brought, I did bring my, okay, when I first did it, I didn't have the solar stuff yet. So I had to chop up all the stuff and I thought they'd have an extension cord, but there's no power there. So I had to, I'd put all the, all my, all the ingredients in the pressure cooker, then walked, then exited the park, walked across this big boulevard, which is like full of cars and to some deli. And they let me heat up, you cook the pressure cooker stuff there. Meanwhile, the people at the demonstration are just sitting there. I mean, they're in a lovely park, but you know, I'm gone for like 45 minutes and come back and like, here's the food. And they're like, oh yeah, that's right. So they love the food. But the next time I went, which is last time I brought up, my battery, my solar panels, the pressure cooker, enough food for all, for I don't know how many people. And that's a lot to carry by subway. And I thought, well, at least on the way back, I'll have less food to carry. No, because they have a garden and they're like, have all this food. It was like <laughs> in the fall and they're like, we're closing pretty soon. So take as much as you can. Like a bunch of stuff growing on my windowsill here it was saplings from them. And sometimes people are like, Josh, you don't know what it's like up in the Bronx. They don't have all the resources you do here. I'm like, thank God they don't know that because then they wouldn't do this. But they, they do it. They're not waiting for you to like tell them they can do I mean, it. The Bronx, one of the best things about the Bronx is all the open space and, and greenery they do have. That's probably the bet for me, the best borough. You know, when people say like, oh, Jackson Heights already has a park. The park, they, what they consider a park is what I consider like a tiny playground. Because in the Bronx, we had like our smallest park was right behind our house was the Oval, which is a gigantic park. And then we had walking distance Van Cortlandt Park and walking distance Bronx Zoo and walking distance Botanical Gardens. Mm -hmm. And we had all this amazing, amazing, really large parks and small parks all throughout the borough. Whereas in Queens, so many neighborhoods are like starved of parkland or you have like a tiny little a park that's supposed to accommodate all those uses, and it can't. Yeah, actually, here, the park space per square foot is really low in Greenwich Village, and per person is very low. Oh, I forgot about it. Drew Gardens. The back of Drew Gardens is the Cross Bronx Expressway. Oh, wow. And it's, they have a fence with, like, overgrown with ivy, so you can't quite see it, but it's obviously you hear it. And it's so, such a, what do we call it? Like, wreck? It's like a scar. And yeah, I, when I look at how, what Amsterdam, how Amsterdam has transformed or how the people deliberately through initially working against the government, but then working with the government after they shifted the culture to make their, even the most busy streets parks. And I like, it's hard for me to imagine it, but like I kind of, Greenwich Avenue used to be called Greenwich Lane. And what if it was like Greenwich Park? What if it was green? What if it was... I just, I would love to see that. Once you have these transformations, there's really no looking back. I mean, just to have, you know, have space now for us in our neighborhood to be able to go for a long walk is amazing. In the park, it's just, you know, it's just a block long, right? So what are you going to just walk around in a circle? Mm -hmm. Now you can go for a substantial walk. You can go for a real bike ride to clear your mind or... And you can also safely bike or walk to almost anywhere you want to, right? Because... And the transformation for our school kids, I mean, just over and over again. But this only happened, we have really, really amazing volunteers. And that's why this works. 
And not only do we have the volunteers that you see on the street helping us every day, you have all the other community members that put the barricade back in place, that pick up a, a can or a, a tissue in the street. You know, people really care for their community because they're involved and because because so many people make 34th Avenue happen. So many people are invested in keeping it as nice as it is and making it better. That might be a good place to wrap up. Is there anything I didn't think to ask? Are there problems or things that I didn't know about? Or is it like, you said all these volunteers. How many did you need to start? So I think the first iteration, we probably had a couple of dozen people help us. Remember, we had 26 blocks to open and close every morning and every evening and keep closed all the, you know, closed to cars and open to people. And so that, that required a lot more volunteers. Now we need someone to make sure. So we have all these students helping us, sort of a supervisory presence to make sure that our hopscotch is going, our drawing table is going, our salsa class is going on time. But it's a lot less now. Like you said, it's, it's really self-sustaining after a while. We're always looking for people to do new and fun activities. I think today we're going to have someone come by and do tie-dye for the kids. You know, so every, every day there's something fun happening. Man, so I really want to, I hope you can put me in touch with some of the city people to make things happen here. And, and if you're up for it, like, there's actually a, an application that you can, it's, a, it's an online application and you can start with your own open street. And I'm happy to share that with you. Should I get a bunch of volunteers first? Or I mean, I think you really want to, first of all, in order for anything to work, you really want to make sure you have the community involvement. And so that's really key. That was the first thing that we worked on is to make sure that our neighbors were with us and behind us and willing to help us. We went, I think I told you earlier in the conversation, to a lot of the nonprofits that already have roots in the neighborhood. And so that was really helpful. Let's go walk around the neighborhood if you're up for it and find the best streets to start with. Great. Cool. Jim Burke, thank you very much. Thank you very much. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.